Welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to watch the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am Carlos Cooper, one of your co-hosts with me as always. Dave Gurney. And not with us is Joe Hilliard. He's not here. Out on the road this week. Out on the road this week. If you listen to last week's episode, you might have... Uh, noticed that it sounded a little different than normal. Yeah. And that was because we Zoomed it. We had um, recorded two whole episodes, Joe and I in the same room, David in an, uh, another room coming in from Zoom. I fucked up and they didn't record, so we re-recorded it, all of us on Zoom. And now David and I are here to re-record the second episode that I lost. Uh but we were recording two episodes because Joe was going to be out of town. He is now out of town. and But we're still here. But we're still here. And we can be physically present now because yeah, I'm, I'm in the clear. I, in the you clear. Know, I, I was uh, quarantining because I had had a close contact. Yes, never yeah. got it, thankfully. Yes, um, that's true. Uh, but yeah, so we're here. And not only is the episode different because Joe isn't here, we're also completely trashing our normal format, throwing it out the window. <laughs> That's right. Joe's not here. We can do whatever we, do we want. It. He is the one that makes us do these things. He's well, like um, Danny DeVito's character from Space Jam. He and, and, and we're Michael Jordan. He's making us play basketball for the people that come to the amusement park for eternity. That's right. Uh, but yeah. he's gone, so now we can do whatever we want. And the, the first thing we want to do well i was gonna say the the first thing we want to do is the thing we always do so we're not going to deviate too much to start uh because we want to have beer to drink to. i mean it, it's beer and a movie folks and they're going to be movies don't don't worry there's going to be plenty of movies uh but before we get to those movies we're going to get to some beer this one i am shocked to announce that this is the first time we've had this uh brewery on the podcast as far as i know joe's probably going to listen to this do his little uh you know spreadsheet search and and find out that i'm wrong but but i think if i searched correctly we have not had oxbow brewing company out of maine actually several locations their original uh brewery location is in newcastle maine kind of a rural but uh rural spot right on the coast beautiful lovely if you can make it out there they also have a blending and bottling facility in portland which is the more you know sort of urban metropolis uh of maine so, so the so population of roughly how many uh th- not even what we have here in corpus That's yeah, what I th- thought, yeah. B- but but you know you get a lot of summer tourists it's a bustling place in okay. the summer um great pl- great spot to go as well and then they even have another beer garden in i think it's oxford maine which i've never been to so they, they've they've you know They've been around for a few years, probably a decade at this point. Um, and this bottle itself is almost five years old. Yeah, uh, they've you know, been around at least almost five years. <laughs> definitely before Minimum. this. Um, but what we're having is a five-year-old bottle of Momoko, which is their barrel-aged farmhouse ale with peaches. Um, it's 12 months of production time on this one. They like to put that on their labels. <laughs> this was actually bottled in May 2017. I've kept it cool and dark all those years since I got it back here uh, to the great state of Texas. And Carlos and I are going to open this up and get it in our glasses and see what five years of age does to a farmhouse ale with peaches. We made absolute sure that the most aged of aged beers that we've had was without Joe so that he can <laughs> listen to this in envy. That's right. Uh, Ooh, but in our defense... Still liking the nose on that. He is... Mm. Uh, at a, a at a brewery that we have celebrated on this show having flights 
without without us we that's were not right. invited posting pictures <laughs> share, sharing this you know but that's what you got to do that's when you're out you on when you're that's, out on vacation that's what you got to you got to go sample the local brews um but you're right this is one of our kind of a podcast favorite because we uh i believe it was cassidy right cassidy, who brought us yeah, back uh, a growler of the, it was the the uh golden stout it the was golden kind stout. of what it began our, off, yeah. our golden stout journey superior uh, bathhouse out of Arkansas. Um, we also had some other beers of theirs, right? I, I think later on we did, because she went on an, a, yes, another we trip. Yes, we were able to get a couple more. Later. So, Or maybe Joe brought those back. Well, uh, oh, you know what? It was it was uh, Aislinn, Aislinn who brought it back when she was yes, coming that's back. Right, yes, that's right, that's right. Joe so, was not with her on that trip. So on a different road trip, sans Joe, she brought some back. Now, I got to believe that Joe's going to have some in the trunk if I know anything about Joe, it's that he's going to bring some back. But enough of that. What are we doing today? How are we different? I mean, I already said that we're completely throwing our normal format out the window. So what does that mean? And I will tell you, um, as Joe probably has referenced, if uh, we haven't expounded upon this, David and I convene uh, every Friday. Uh, and Give or take. And have, yeah, give or take. Sometimes he... Uh, he, he stands me up and it throws my whole week <laughs> off. But, uh, and you know, we'll talk about maybe some some movies that we watch that we're not doing on the show and sometimes they pop up in our group chat but the thing is that you know there are too many movies that get, re- get released every year especially now that we've kind of cemented all horror october as like a uh um uh, an institution an within the beer and a movie yes, canon, universe. Yeah, yeah, a pillar of the beer and a movie universe. Uh so that more or less takes three of the 52 weeks out of the year kind of away from us as far as new releases or four sometimes. Um, Sometimes there are new horror movies to watch in October. Anyway, uh, all that being said, there are too many films that come out in a year to watch, especially the way that the industry works and that so many of the buzzworthy ones come out within a month or two of each other mm-hmm. and also us being in a smaller market that we don't necessarily get all of the movies uh, that we want to see we talked about that last week with titan didn't show in theaters here um the week before that tragedy of macbeth didn't show in theaters here mm-hmm. um so you know there are these obstacles that we face however being uh the industrious cinephiles that we are we still find ways to watch these movies it just so happens that we can't always fit them in to the show right. so what we are doing is a leftovers episode just like this beer is leftover from five years ago we are going to be looking at the leftovers from 2021 that didn't get their full proper treatment on the program uh but that we both saw all three of us saw maybe only one of us saw um and uh we're gonna give more like bite-sized reviews little yeah. tiny discussions of them and uh unlike the first time that we recorded this episode we didn't talk about who was going to start or what they were going to start with no this is we, carlos <laughs> and i i mean really i just free i think form. we're just yeah we're free forming it here right we're, we're gonna we're gonna throw some stuff out so i'll i'll go ahead and kick it off just because i was looking at the list and i kind of saw um w- one of the first films on there and uh so when we started putting this episode together, this was a film that I was almost positive that we had done on the show, but that we didn't. Uh, I think it did get some time on the after hours, patreon.com slash podcast, $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week. But apparently according to, uh, the almighty spreadsheet, we did not do this film and it is quest loves summer of soul. It is a documentary about a music festival that took place in Harlem, New York, 
the same summer that Woodstock took place. It was shot on film. Um, there was footage of it shot. Uh, and then that footage was stored away and never seen. The festival was not the cultural touchstone that Woodstock became. It was uh, kind of swept under the rug, despite being this massive moment in soul music and black culture in America, um, featuring some of the greatest musicians that American music has ever seen, period, let alone for that time period. I mean, we're talking Sly Stone, we're talking the Staple Singers, we're talking David Ruffin, we're talking Nina Simone. Uh, I mean, the list... I mean, it goes on and Fifth on and dimension, on. Stevie Wonder. Fifth yeah, dimension, no, yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, and it, it, this, were you to see a poster circulate on the internet of this lineup, you would be like, holy shit, that's a stacked lineup. But for some is reason- Is that like when we were young too? Is going to, <laughs> well, this was, this was when we were young, 0. 0.5. It was before. Yeah, right. This you know, is when the, we were actually young. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, when we weren't born yet. <laughs> yeah. And, but yeah. And so it's, yeah, it, absolutely insane that this, uh, it took Questlove, what, 50 plus years later, digging this footage up right. and, you know, getting it all together, going back and talking to people from the fifth dimension and some of the other uh, performers, a lot of concert goers that were there. Uh, he was able to find an interview and just, yeah, um, kind of give us an, an idea of what this four, right, four weeks uh, if I remember correctly, yeah, three it was or multiple weeks. weeks. So um, it was a festival, but it wasn't like a Woodstock where everything took place yeah. over the course of whatever three days. It was spread out over several over weeks. several weeks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. what this what this uh, um, festival meant uh, and the impact that it had and how important it was. Um, yeah. and you know, just giving us a look into this time period in Harlem, and um, I and I, you know as a music lover, as a lover of soul music, especially, uh, loved this documentary, thought it was great. Um, and yeah, I mean, um, uh, maybe it, maybe it isn't one that necessarily deserved the full like 30, 45 minute discussion just cause like from a filmmaking perspective, like the art of filmmaking, hmm. it didn't revolutionize the documentary format or anything like that, but there is a lot uh, content wise to yeah. get into with it. So I, yeah, you know, that's a fair point. I mean, I, I think this is, uh, an absolute essential film from many standpoints. I mean, w what you just said about the, the quality of the musicians that are included and, and their musicianship and their performances, that alone is, is sort of worth the price of admi any admission. So I, I think, you know, right off the bat, if you love music, do yourself the favor, watch it. The present day interviews that you mentioned, I think are great. Yeah, n nothing revolutionary or groundbreaking in including them. But in terms of the insights they provide, in terms of, you know, hearing the artists uh, reflect on their experiences at the time, the the audience members, how they were feeling, you know, this was a pivotal moment, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, tail end of the civil rights era, right? This is just after MLK has been assassinated. This yeah. is, you know, there's sort of an energy in the air that's both positive and negative in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of digs into some of that. And also I think from the standpoint that it's doing that kind of historical uh, 
sort of repair of the historical record where, you know, we think of the summer of 1969 as this moment for the counterculture yeah. um, and, and the music of Woodstock and all that. And you have, as you pointed out very accurately, you have some of the heaviest of hitters here on this festival that were never part of that necessarily, and yet were just as vital a piece of what was going on then. And so this kind of brings, I think, something into the historical record that wasn't there when I was a kid growing up and I was hearing about what the 60s were like and what yeah. Woodstock was like. You know, th- th- this is something that uh, I-, I think from a music lover standpoint, from a cultural historical standpoint, and and just from a enjoy yourself for a couple hours when you put this on Hulu is where it's streaming. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You, you can can't watch it right lose. now. This is a fantastic documentary. Questlove, I think, treated the subject matter with the appropriate amount of reverence. And I mean, who else to do it except for him? I mean, yeah. The guy's an encyclopedia. It was called the Harlem Cultural Festival. By right, the way. right. Um, I don't think I mentioned that. Because... I mean, I kind of hope that this is something that he continues to dabble in. I know some people get upset when uh, people outside the world of filmmaking get it. But when somebody with this level of, like you said, knowledge and love of music is going to make movies about music, keep bringing them on. I, w- yeah. I want to see them. Yeah, if there's anybody to stretch outside their wheelhouse a little bit, it's Questlove doing music documentaries. <laughs> I mean, he's got yeah. all the pedigree in the world to be able to do something like that. Yeah. Um, so that was... Well, right on. I think that's a perfect way to kick off this yeah. Leftovers episode. Um, so you're getting two big recommends from us. I think if Joe were here, he would uh, he would echo that sentiment. Yeah. Um, a film that I uh, recently saw because Joe prompted me to, uh, which is streaming on the Apple TV Plus platform called Coda is another oh, one yeah. of our leftovers uh, for this year. This is a film that I think kind of snuck in under a lot of people's radar, but it is getting awards buzz. Uh, it, it, it's definitely... Um, it's it's a heartwarming film of sorts. Just the basic story, folks. CODA stands for Child of Deaf Adults, meaning a family here at the center of this film has two deaf parents and actually one deaf child, an an older brother, but the younger sibling, the daughter, uh, she has her hearing. So, you know, right there you kind of have the seed of a story of a family where, yes, they're connected, they're bonded, but one of the members of the family has this distinct difference from the rest of them that sort of marks her outside. And, of course... You know, she's towards the end of high school. When we pick up the film, she's kind of looking at the future. What's she going to do? Her family, uh, it's a fisherman family. They're they're people of the water. She's kind of helping them. She's their interpreter of sorts because she can speak. She can hear. Yeah. And that becomes a little bit complicated when she starts to think about her life beyond her family. Uh, And in particular, developing her talent of singing, which is a talent that her family just can't really understand in a, yeah. in a direct way. So, you know, you have the basis for a pretty unique kind of family comedy drama, I would call it. I mean, it's definitely got dramatic elements, but there's a lot of humor and heart in it. Um, it's an incredibly heartwarming film. I mean, Joe pointed this out to me in part because he watched it and thought that my family would probably enjoy watching it, and we sure did. I mean, that this this is one of those films where I think, from a performance standpoint, everybody's really nailing it in in a pretty important way. The uh, the 
parents, played by Marley Matlin, who's been in many other films and, and has sort of been, I think, I, I think I can say the most successful hearing impaired performer of the 20th and early 21st century in terms of uh, the the level of career she's been able to have despite her disabilities. Um, but, you know, on top of that, the the man playing her husband, who, who has been just as active, I think, in deaf entertainment, but not maybe had quite as high a profile, Troy, Troy Kotzer, is hilarious. I mean, this guy is truly a great performer who I hope I get to see in more stuff. I mean, it, it's it's pretty, uh, pretty great when you see somebody who you've never really at least paid attention to before, even if he's maybe had some small roles and things that I might have seen. Yeah. And he really kind of pops off the screen um, with, with that. Uh, the lead, Amelia Jones, is really great. Eugenio Derbez shows up. Now, when we recorded this before, Joe had a point of contention with me <laughs> that uh, he felt that Eugenio Derbez, uh, who plays Mr. V, he's the music teacher in school who takes interest in... in uh, in Ruby, um, the singer, the young, the young singer uh, daughter, <laughs> I thought he was very funny. I, I thought he was the right kind of comic relief in the movie, and then also had some really serious moments with it. Joe felt he had been totally—I uh, don't want to do a disservice to what Joe was saying, but basically that he was a little bit too shticky and mm, silly, and, yeah. and that there was something a little bit too goofy and obviously comic reliefy about him to like movie about him it's yeah like, oh this is a character in a movie yeah not a guy but i but i enjoyed it and he and it i'm not saying that that's the case i, I know but that's film, what he was yeah i yeah, know and and to me it played right because i've known those kind of goofy music teachers who have used those tactics to get the best out of their students and to try yeah. to try to break through to them so so i think it's a heartwarming family comedy drama you can't really go wrong. It does seem to be getting a little bit of that attention. If, if you have the Apple TV Plus, I, I don't think this is a lose. You haven't watched this one yet, right? I have not, no. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that is, there are going to be a couple of those where I haven't seen it or maybe you Well, there's going to be it, some that I haven't, yeah. yeah um, where Joe is the third who has, in, the, in this case especially, maybe in some others has seen it. We'll kind of miss him for that. Um, but... Yeah, no, I, I haven't, and yeah, just like you, it wasn't one that really popped on my radar until Joe started mentioning it. Um, mm -hmm. I hadn't seen quite as much about it, but it, it, I mean, it's I I love a good sappy, heartwarming movie. Like I, there's a, a time and a place for that, and the time and the place is almost always because the world is terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these kinda, days I can take you, these films. Yeah, you, absolutely. And you kind of need that a little bit, but I, I definitely. Uh, uh, yeah, that that it, it sounds like a it sounds like one that I should see. And I mean, I've got I've like you said, I've got the Apple TV. Um, bought a MacBook a couple months ago, so I got the got the free like year of it. There so you I, go. At the bare minimum, I've got it for at least another like seven months or <laughs> six months or something. Uh, so definitely gonna try to milk it for all it's worth. But yeah, uh, haven't seen that one, uh, but it sounds uh, it sounds good and uh, definitely. Um, an interesting story. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about some of these movies before, like the sound of metal last year that yes. has to do with this hearing impaired, uh, protagonist. And I, you know, I find those, I find those stories very interesting about characters who have such a similar yet in this one way, very different life experience from you. And we get some of those moments in this film where we cut out the sound and yeah. give us the feel like, it, I think, I think sound of metal did it in a more, um, 
in a way that hit me a little bit harder in in terms of like my own empathy for the character i think yeah well it's about a guy losing it and so you can fathom what that's yes. like because and, you do have your and hearing. i think yes right exactly so you're seeing somebody go from being one of the hearing to being one of the non-hearing yeah and having to try to cope with that what does he do how does he you know and easy great to, film folks if you haven't seen yeah, sound, of metal, see sound of metal that, that that's a definite but i would say you know this one is it's the somewhat lighter version of of that peek into it mm -hmm. but still a pretty good one yeah very interesting very interesting where are you uh, taking us next uh well you know uh a movie that has gotten a lot of buzz this year as most of these will but this one like more than just buzz splash tsunami <laughs> spider-man no way home oh yeah yeah spider-man no way Whew. home. i saw it you did. I saw it. Oh my gosh, folks, when we recorded this, uh, you know, a little over a week ago, he had not seen it yet. So in between. In between, I saw it. Okay, what, what's what's the word? What? I fell asleep. <laughs> I missed at least an hour and a half of this oh, movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I missed so much of this movie. Oh my I gosh. cannot stress that enough. <laughs> uh, and it's funny because I remember starting to doze off and i was just like oh, i'm kind of just bored by the melodrama of all of this like it, mm. it was it was doc ock was there jamie fox okay. was there uh the spider men had not arrived yet and okay. i might have seen a little bit of when green goblin first showed up i don't remember exactly but i was just like oh my god this is so dramatic peter parker everything's bad and it's like the whole, when the spell is being cast and he's like oh no jesus change it it's like yeah. what the fuck is wrong with you dude like yeah you already survived this like apocalyptic event and now you're trying to fuck this up too like what is you know <laughs> and, and then and then i woke up and all the spider-men are there together working together and i look over and josh is fucking asleep you know and he's the one that dragged me there and he was like oh i gotta see it one more time and i look over at him and he's dozed off and i'm just like I, and then when the movie ended i was like you fell asleep and he was like you did too and i was like yeah and part of it was because i got a terrible beer that uh it oh, was a no. it's a beer i love that i drink all the time but clearly the line had not been cleaned or something because it did not taste right oh, i didn't no. even drink half of it i was like Eey. um but wow yeah, this I, sounds I just, terrible i just thought it was I, I thought it was worth mentioning that i did go and i, I tried uh, I, I gave it my best shot but at the end of the day i was just like oh man this really is i'm having a hard time yeah uh, and honestly Unless he's wearing a cowboy hat, I don't want to see Cumberbatch do an American accent. I didn't. <laughs> I, I don't. I've never. I mean, I never saw the Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, but I, I did. I, I just. I, I thought it was okay. I find. I don't know. For some reason, I find him as that character. I. I think. I think Joe even said he's miscast as Doctor Strange, and we kind of disagreed. But you agree now. I don't know that I agree, but I see it. Huh. I see it more than I did before. Uh, yeah, him my, being a more pivotal part of this, whereas in, I felt like the Avengers ones that I saw that he was in, yes, I mean, to a certain, narrative wise, he's a pivotal part, but I feel as far as like interactions between characters, he's kind of off to the side, like meditating or whatever the fuck. And every now and then they're like, hey, can we do this? And he's like, maybe. And yeah. that's it, you know? Like, <laughs> uh, and so with, with this I'm one where he's more of can't. like a central kind of, at least in the first act, you know, a pretty big part of sure. driving for it. And so, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, well, I, 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 you know, not to say that it's a bad movie, and I wish that I had seen more of it so that I could yeah. talk a little bit more about whether it'll age well, which I don't think it will just from what I saw, or whether the it had pacing issues or whatever the case may be. Um, I mean, it's cl- I mean, to me, you know, I, I, I saw the film, uh, you know, now over a month ago. Um, you know, sort of as it was building its huge momentum towards the uh, w- whatever it's uh, the, is it the top grossing film yet of of all time I, of all time uh, if it's getting close I mean it, I, I've or at least uh, on a, it was getting close to Avatar I, th- I think that anyway um, you know its box office currently is one point seven three nine billion okay that's up there um, <laughs> and you know honestly seeing this film it. There's the part of me that scratches my head to why is this film becoming the most popular film of all time? Six highest grossing of all time. Sixth. Okay. Why is it up there in that sort of the upper echelon? The, the fourth U.S. gross. Okay. There we Six go. Six worldwide. Okay. But it's getting close, I think, on those, like, I don't think there's a lot separating some of those top spots there. No. I think I think Avatar is over two, though. That might... Global, yeah. Yeah. So, you know... I, I hear where people are coming from when they just love the good time roller coaster fun of the superhero films. And I can go there. I mean, we've we've reviewed plenty. And I'm probably if there is a comic book movie apologist on the show, it's probably me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I failed to find the kind of excitement and energy in this film that I feel like most people are, um, y- you know. I think the key to it for me, the key the key that's not working for me is the seeing all of these different iterations of of uh Spider-Man villains and Spider-Man himself. Yeah. You know, Peter Parker's show up in the same film. I, I don't get it. I don't care. I get I get it I and I kind care. of understand why people get excited about it. But yeah, I don't I, I don't honestly. I'm I'm kind of at where you like I don't really it doesn't do that much for me. I mean, it was it was the same and, with- the, Layer on top of that, like Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker, I don't, I haven't seen those films, so I don't really have any connection with them. There's a lot of Toby Maguire. What I like, I saw them at the time. I thought they were fine, but everything I've learned about that guy since makes me think he's a total piece of shit. Toby Maguire? Yeah. Oh yeah. I know nothing about him. I read the book Molly's Game, which was made into a film, and I have to, but about a poker game that he ran. Yeah. Oh, that was about a poker game he ran. He, he didn't run it, but he had a lot of power in the game. Interesting. And he was, yeah. I, I had no idea there was a Tobey Maguire affiliation. Yeah, there. and the stuff they say about him, I mean, and apparently very few people have refuted it. It's you know, okay. it's, it's one of those things never, where it's just like, no, he's kind him. of been known as like he's an asshole. And, you know, that first Sam Raimi Spider-Man, for my money, is the best one, in large part due to Willem Dafoe carrying sure. that film. And the amazing Macy Gray performance in it. Yeah, uh, not, absolutely. Not to mention the Sum 41 song on the soundtrack. Uh, there's a lot going for that movie. Is, is there a Creed song too? Uh, Nickelback. Or? Nickelback. There you go. Okay. Looking for a hero. Yeah. yeah. Save me. So, uh, you yeah, know, the, so I, I get it on one level why it's become what it has, but it does befuddle me. And the fact that it's being mentioned for awards and stuff. That's crazy. That, that kind of... The, so so a couple of a couple of things one like whenever when all the avengers showed up at the end of endgame they all came to those portals nothing didn't do anything for me i was yeah. as like flatline as you could be watching that when everyone else is like wetting their pants in the theater um 
But what I just, another, and look, I, if you like this movie, I want to say this first. If you like this movie, I am thrilled for you, honestly. Like, I am happy for you. Like, I remember a, a professor in one of my philosophy classes in college when we were talking about, like, if God exists or whatever. I remember this particular professor talking to some of the, you know, theists in the class and being like, hey, power to you. I'm stoked for you. I wish that I could believe what the things you believe it's it's a much happier life to believe <laughs> there you go that at the end of it everything is going to be perfect and good it's but all I, been a plan but folks. i just it's can't i i personally cannot get myself to think that right and so that's yeah. how i feel about the spider-man movies i i'm glad that uh, if you like it i'm really happy for you and i'm glad that you like it and i'm glad that it brought you joy so before I say what I'm about to say, just know that. And then, <laughs> and then, but one thing that kind of befuddles me about this movie, like you, you know, like you said, is that all they had to do was put three different actors on the screen at the same time and everyone lost their. It's like, how easily can you be fooled into thinking that something is profound, is good or, yeah, or yeah. profound or this monumentous occasion or whatever. It's like, no, they just paid people enough money to stand. Like even fucking Alfred Molina was like, they were like, Oh, why'd you want to come back to doc? Ock? And he was like, cause they fucking paid me. Are you out of are you crazy? <laughs> like he literally looked down the barrel of a camera lens yeah. at a press junkie and was like, cause they fucking paid me a lot of money. Are you dumb? Yeah. Like that's why I did it. Yeah. He doesn't have any profound love for doc. Ock. He doesn't love the universe or right. anything like that. Everyone in this movie is there because they got paid a lot of money to do it. Wow. And the fact that anybody could think anything else and be like, oh, what a pure moment this is, whatever. It's like, you're crazy. Uh, <laughs> I just don't understand it. I, I just, I think that, I think that we have reached the point where Marvel is like the equivalent of like Walmart, like chain stores, you know, yeah. they're the, they're the big box store of movies where everything is like run through an algorithm and they spit out. This is the movie that people want to see. These are all of the tests that we've done that show audiences like this, this, and this, or like we read all the forums and they say they want to see this, this, and this, let's just yeah. give it to them. You know, it's like fast food. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is definitely a fan service element going on here, and you know, for it, my it, money, that's all the movie is. Sure, sure, and and if you're one of those fans, then enjoy the service. That's that's wonderful. Uh, my buddy I Nathan mean, told me that those exact that those exact words. He he asked if I had seen it, and what I thought this was several weeks ago, and. I was just like, yeah, I don't know. It just kind of seems like a bunch of fan service garbage. And he was like, yeah, that's what I thought you would say. And you're right. But I'm the fan that they're servicing. And go. I loved it. And I'm and, like, that's and again, awesome. And I like what you said. More power to you. This is not, I, I take no, I have no interest and I would take no uh, joy out of deflating somebody's love of this. I just have to be honest about how I react to it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and to me as a sort of moderate to low-level comic book superhero movie fan, this just does not do enough to really justify being a, a gutta-see film, a must-see film. Yeah. But I get it. If it's if you're already captivated, if you're already caught up with that fever, boy, you need this Ride is your wave. prescription. Yeah. Go, go get it, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, well, hold on. Before <laughs> okay, I you have on, another I, point? I, I, I just wanted to say that I meant to mention this after Summer of Soul, and it's that there was... Um, a documentary released about Kid Cudi this year. Wow. That's very good. And I, I'll find the name of it. Um, 
God, what was it fucking called? Um, but yeah, there, I think it was on Amazon prime. Uh, but it's about, about him. It's, I mean, it's really about his whole career up until like the present day. Um, and it's what the fuck. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very good. Whatever it's called, just search Kid Cudi documentary and you'll find it. Uh, it's fantastic. You're going to find it as I'm talking about this next film, which is a film that, uh, when we recorded this first, Joe had talked about a little bit. But I jumped in because I had also seen it. It is Kenneth Branagh's 2021 film, Belfast. Mm. A black and white, mostly, coming-of-age story about a young boy living in Belfast, Ireland. Uh, He is essentially a stand-in for a young Kenneth Branagh whose family is a Northern, Northern Irish Protestant family. They're there in Belfast during the beginning of the Troubles, which is where, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants really took arms against each other. There was a lot of, uh, you know, many, many years, decades of of fighting that went on. This is kind of the, you know, just as this is being touched off. And you're kind of seeing how this family deals with the turmoil that's unfolding around them while they're also dealing with a potentially... Um, a big decision that the family has to make where the father could go to work in England for better pay, better job, bring the family with him. Um, is that the right move? Is it the right move to pull themselves out of Belfast just as all this stuff is unfolding or are they better off staying with their community and surrounded by that kind of extended family that they have there? Uh, so, you know, classic, like I said, coming of age story, family drama, Levels of humor in it. Um, I was charmed by this film. I, I think that there's there's definitely enough going for it that I was um, I, I was pulled into it. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I think the performances, by and large, are really good. The the young boy, the buddy character played by Jude Hill, I think he did a great job. He's he's very charming, very cute. Uh, Jamie Dornan playing his father. Judy Dench as the grandmother is quite quite good. Kieran Hines as the grandfather. The mother, Catriona Bifay. Balfay. Um, Don't ask me. Great performances all around. Now, I think this film loses a little bit with me because it is kind of a little bit too on the nose at times uh, with, with its sentimentality. I think that there's also some some choices made by Brana that I wouldn't have. Like, he, he has it kind of bookended by these color sequences that even though I kind of understand what he's doing and trying to connect the past to the present a little bit, it didn't really work for me. And he uses Van Morrison exclusively throughout the this Yeah, the problematic. Film, which I understand. And I mean, I guess, like, because of the place, and, you know, obviously Van Morrison is a big Irish export. There, yeah. You know, there, there's reason to have him there. But... I only like certain Van Morrison music, and it's not the music they used in this film, by and large. So it was pulling me out of it at times. So, so the music that they used, it's not music that he wrote for it. It's just they're I don't recycling think his so. catalog. I, th- I think they recycle catalog, uh, and so it's numbers. not it's not astral. No, no, there's nothing that meandering and. No, they don't go for like the pop hits. So I I gotta give them credit in a way that they're like not going with the. Well, yeah, if they use the song "Moon Dance," I might be okay. Come on, (laughs) but like you know, some of the stuff on that record is 
Okay. But, good, you know. but that's that. I mean, I'm th- so I'm just pointing out a few criticisms that I had. Sure. Overall, I think that this is not a waste of your time film. I think if you're somebody who already is predisposed to not liking sentimentality, I think if you're going to pick one of the family dramas to do, I'd say Coda over this. Interesting. Because, because Coda has, I think, a little bit more going in terms of like, there's some real... St- I should say there are real stakes in this film, real stakes in this film, but yeah. there's something about it that makes me feel like it's all too, it's going to work out. You yeah. can just kind of tell, even though there's going to be a little bit of sadness at the end, like they're going to make it okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I, uh, you know, it was like a lot of these films kind of brought up in our group chat and nothing's ever really discussed in great detail there film wise, because there's always the potential of it appearing on the program and we like to kind of not play our hand right before we record. So all of that being said, based on the kind of, you know, dancing around the issue conversations around Belfast, I definitely expected you to be more positive on it. Yeah. I, I, I didn't dislike it. It wasn't, it wasn't that, but it was has, also has one it lowered in your esteem as you've <laughs> sat with it. Like as time has gone on, I think so. You okay. know, I think coming out it of the feels f- like that for me. I think coming out of the film, I would have been in my perception of your like. I, I would have had those couple kind of caveats there, but I think I would have had a more full throated defense for it. I think as time has gone on, I've felt a little bit more that oh, it's kind of convenient the way you put this together. Oh, this is kind of there's mm-hmm. something a little bit too. I mean, it's such a tumultuous time that it's documenting. Yeah, and yet it still kind of feels weirdly safe, even though it isn't. I mean, that's that's the the thing is like, I feel like okay. the, the stakes could have been established in a, in a more profound way. Yeah, I see what you mean. Stakes like rules are very important to establish. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what it, isn't that kind of the funny thing about this is like when we do new movies on the show, yeah. we usually see them and within four or five days we're talking about them right right and so with a movie like this had we recorded an episode i on might it, have been out, more positive you yeah. might have been more positive about it um uh the kid cuddy documentary is called a man named scott if you haven't already okay. figured that out for yourself uh enough time has gone by i feel like if you were interested enough you would have googled it but it, it is an amazon original god for, you know god forbid uh <laughs> we hate to see it but it is but but it is a great big daddy uh, bezos uh, big daddy bezos <laughs> there's a, some really funny kanye interviews in it i have to say like the man is just an absolute ridiculous human being. Uh, okay, so this is the last one that I will uh, talk about before we talk about this beer. I think, David, you probably have one more for us yeah. before we go to the break. And this one, unlike, you know, and it's funny because when I thought I, thought I was going to mention Spider-Man No Way Home and then talk about this one like in the same thing because I didn't think I was going to say that much about Spider-Man. We ended up having <laughs> a longer conversation about it than I expected. But this is a movie that I... I'll just come out and say it before I even say what the movie is that I loved this movie. Um, it is the directorial debut from Michael Samoski. Samoski? Probably Samoski. I thought it was Sarnoski. Yeah, the R and the N next to each other. It was like an M. Uh, Jesus. Michael Sarnoski, very sorry. Um, and it's called Pig. And it stars Ooh. Nicolas Cage and Alex Wolf and Adam Arkin. And it is, um, okay, so it was marketed 
as a kind of Nicolas Cage, John Wick situation, right? Um, the basic premise is that Nicolas Cage is a, a truffle forager. Yeah. And he uses this truffle pig to help him find the truffles because you can't you can't grow these things. They're, uh, they grow in the wild. You can't cultivate them. Right. I talked to our good friend Harold about this, who's a chef. Um, and he said, yeah, people have tried you just can't really do it. Yeah. They grow in the wild. You got to find them. That's why they're expensive. So someone comes and kidnaps his pig. And he's like, fuck that. That pig is the only friend in the world I have. He lives alone out in the woods. Well, and you don't really even get a lot of, you know, because I don't know about you, but I assume that the motivation is this is my livelihood, right? Like this is later on you find out, you know, spoilers, folks, that he's Per- perfectly, he, the character, is perfectly capable of Robin, finding these Robin. on his own, Robin. Yeah. Um, he doesn't need the pig, but the pig is his companion. Yeah. And th- yeah. It, yeah. I mean, definitely, especially right up top, there is a bit of, you know, his livelihood involved in it. And they do lead you to believe that his primary motivation is to be able to continue to sustain himself and find these troubles. But you can kind of tell from uh, the beginning that it that there's more to it than that. You don't know yeah. how much more right away, but clearly... You know, his style of living being in isolation, like this being his only companion. Yes, there is a financial need involved, but also like, yeah, this is the like this is the person or the thing I spend my life with, you know. Um, And so, yeah, it's kind of marketed or it was to me at least. um, And maybe other people had different interpretations of it uh, because we didn't get a ton of. Uh, press around this movie in mm-hmm. our market. But yeah, it definitely kind of seemed like a John Wick, I'm going to find, I'm going to go find my pig. Whereas, you mm-hmm. know, John Wick, he's avenging the death of his dog, murder of his dog. Um, but let me tell you, if you have not seen this movie, first of all, pause this podcast and go fucking watch this movie right now. Right now. It's, it's on, on Hulu. Hulu. There you go. Uh, uh, you want me to call? Um, <laughs> it's on Hulu in stereo. Uh, Go watch it right now. It is not an action movie. Uh, it's not a thriller. There's a little bit of a little bit of violence. There but is it, there is some, but it's not an action movie. But I agree. it's not the driving force of the film. No, uh, it is a movie about grief. It's a movie about love. It's a movie about food. Uh, about identity, identity in terms of who one is and what. They, um, I mean, because as you dig into it, right, you've come to find out that Rob Robin is. A former celebrated chef, like really kind of the the, one of the notable sort of originators of the Portland food scene, which, you know, again, in in the real world is a thing, but in the fictional world of this film is, you know, also a thing. Um, And, you know, seeing him kind of come back into that scene in this small way to sort of track this pig and, and find out who might have taken it and who, and who he comes into and the reverence that he gets with the people. Cause he's, who, cause he's entering these like very fine dining establishments. Right. Looking like reeking. a homeless man. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. his hair and beard are long and unkempt. His clothes are tattered and worn. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as anybody figures out who he is, it's like night and day. Oh my God. Right. I'm so honored that you're in my restaurant. Let me serve you some food. And of course, I, one of the things I love the most about it is Nick Cage's kind of, uh, 
portrayal of the of the old head as you know you would call it like in hip-hop or something yeah. like that but you know people are serving him these clouds of vapor that are infused with these flavors yeah. and, you know all this kind of foo-foo molecular gastronomy yes yeah, yeah. shit like that and he's just like the fuck is this <laughs> he's like mad about it right, which is, right. but it, it, you know if you do go to watch this movie and you find uh yourself I don't know, struggling with the pace of the movie, I beg you to stick with it because the where the film ultimately ends up, it's like big climactic scene at the end mm-hmm. is so fucking worth the journey that it takes you to get there. I saw this movie, the last screening that it played in our market, Thursday, fucking 3.10 <laughs> p.m., yeah. you know, afternoon screening me and three other people in the theater and I'm sobbing uh, grown man sobbing in a theater mid afternoon yeah. when the, this movie was over and yeah. I was so happy that I w- made the effort to go see it before it left, uh, before it left theaters. And I wish defi- I had, I definitely wish I had. a movie to, to see if you haven't already again, it's on Hulu. So if you have access to that already, then it's just there waiting for you. Right. An enthusiastic second endorsement for me. I mean, the, the, I think this is some of the best filmmaking of 2021 and one of Nick Cage's greatest performances. And, and not what, and not, you know, people, you know, it always bothers me the way that like popular perception of him kind of exists in the world as this like unhinged maniac or whatever, because he's not, I mean, yes, he is that to he a has certain that extent. Mode. He has that mode. Um, but this is such a subtle, Oh, poignant yeah. performance. It's so dialed back compared to what you're used to from him. And it's just so completely on point with the tone of the film. Yeah. And another thing that I really, as if I didn't love him like as an actor enough already and as the kind of bold uh, risk taker that he is, but I also am loving this kind of, I don't know, third or fourth act of his career where he is really investing so much time and energy into getting these movies made Mm -hmm. that might not see the light of day. Otherwise he's like really like this is, well, it's kind of great because I mean, and we will be talking about this again, folks, you know, we have our cage matches um, periodically and we will certainly have more. you know, I think what it boils down to is I think you're right. We're into we'll have to periodize it at some point. But I do think we're into probably at least a fourth phase of the Cage career where he definitely went through a period in the 2010s where he was taking any script that would come his way and doing whatever. And I haven't seen a lot of those films. And, you know, and when I look at the filmography, I'm like, OK, could this ones. possibly be any good? But in the last two years, two and a half, three years, there have been so many great performances, even some of the wackier ones, Willy's Wonderland, which we did yeah. on the, the show last year. Um, it's fantastic. It's, yeah. and, and Doesn't it's, say a word. No, and, and it's a very different, that one is more of an action film, yeah. an action horror film, um, where, you know, he there is a physicality to him, but yeah, it's not the manic Nick Cage unhinged in that way that, you know. It's he, not Vampire's Kiss. Right. Or they, Wicker Man. Exactly. So, I mean, he's capable of a lot. And I think it's interesting now that it it seems like enough people have caught on that you have filmmakers like Sarnofsky or... Um, uh, um, I mean, fucking Herzog. Uh, uh, well, uh, 
Cosmatos. Uh, Cosmatos, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like filmmakers who a know Mandy, what he's yeah. capable of, who want to bring him into their narrative universes and create these things with him. So I'm excited. I think that Pig is a an absolute uh, masterpiece of a, of a small scale that everybody would do themselves the favor if they were to watch this one. So in so, 2019, the color out of space, that was another, there you go. Yeah. Which I still haven't seen. All right. Into the spider verse to go back to Spider-Man before one of my clo- favorite parts of that. <laughs> but yeah, before we close out this half of the episode, I'm going to mention one more film, um, that only I saw out of the three of us. I, I know, uh, West side story, the, the oh, Steven Spielberg yeah. remake of West side story, which, you know, we talked a little bit about whether or not we might do it for the show, but ultimately I think there was just enough disinterest in Spielberg and where he is right now and also disinterest in the musical to a certain extent that it just didn't quite get there. Uh, I saw it as a matinee, you know, leading up to the holidays uh, with the family, um, wanting to experience it. You know, I think it's a good film. I think it was entertaining enough. I think it has some good things that it does with the original story um, of the stage play that was adapted into the film, you know, uh, originally with uh, Rita Moreno and uh, Natalie Wood. And <laughs> but that said, I'm still not a heavy musical guy. It's It takes a special kind of musical to really draw me in. There's some great music here. There are some great songs that you'll recognize, even if you don't think you're familiar with West Side Story or... You're certainly familiar with I Feel Pretty. I feel, you know. Tonight. <laughs> tonight, right. God, I saw Mario. that trailer too many times. Yes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, so I wasn't disappointed necessarily. And in fact, I think there's some things to be said for it's pretty cool to see a filmmaker at this late stage in his career take on a project in a genre that's so outside what his comfort zone is or what people would think his comfort zone is. And he does it really well. And I think the real testament to me or the real test is how do musical fans react to it? And by and large, musical fans have loved this film. Yeah, that's true. Now, it hasn't done that well at the box office, in part because there aren't that many movie musical fans out there anymore. But Pretty niche. For those who are into it, this seems like a, you know, a great bet. I, for me, didn't, didn't sort of, uh, you know, get me that excited. And I'm not terribly um, shocked that it's being mentioned for certain awards and whatnot, but I would kind of be shocked if it won a lot, actually. I think I could see it winning yeah. for Kushner's re, uh, you know, reimagined uh, screenplay that he that he did for Jared it. Kushner? Uh, t- Tony Kushner. <laughs> <laughs> um, Angels in America, Tony Kushner. Did, uh, you, did you listen to his WTF today? Ooh, no, I didn't. I, I think he was yet. today's guest. Oh, okay. Well, that I didn't, listen, I didn't listen to it, but... Yeah. So... You know, I'll just, I'll throw it out there as one that, uh, no, you're never going to hear a full-on review from Beer in a Movie, but, you know, your, your good friend Dave says, yeah, I don't know, if you're a musical person, <laughs> yeah, you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. If not, this isn't going to be the one to win you over, probably. Yeah, and you know, I, the, the more I've thought about it, the more that I kind of feel similarly to West Side Story that I do uh, about licorice pizza, which is like <laughs> a filmmaker of that pedigree. Like you put your time and effort into this. Tell me, 
telling this story again, you know, again, or in Licorice Pizza's case, like at all. Uh, But I don't know. But I feel that way about, again, everything Spielberg's done since like 2004 Mm. or 2003, maybe, where it's just like, that's what, really? You thought this was? (laughs) All right. All right. Fine. Um, Well, but do you you think that Oxbow, you think this (laughs) <laughs> what you put your effort into? You did this? Or, I mean, or is it like, oh, this is what you did? I think it's more the latter for me. I, I mean, this is a beer that I remember when it was fresh five years ago. Uh, get, getting getting it at the brewery, um, also bringing a couple okay, bottles. Fancy. Getting a couple, bring a couple bottles back with me, drinking at least one somewhat fresh, but then deciding, you know what, I'm going to tuck this one away because right on the bottle it says you know, enjoy five years. I'm like, okay, well then what's it going to do? I mean, Oxbow is a farmhouse brewery, so they have that kind of mixed culture fermentation. It has a very, um, you know, there's a sourness to it for sure, but the peach flavor is still there. I think, I think it was a bit more pronounced when, when I had it, when it was young, but I was super impressed that it was, I'm still getting that peach with every sip. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed it. I mean, as far as farmhouse ales go, I mean, it hits all the all the notes, checks all the boxes mm-hmm. uh, that you would that you would want. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I I, I could have definitely imagine that the peach would be slightly more prominent, closer to its original bottling day, but it is definitely still there, you know. And it's um, the right amount of tart. I feel it's not overly tart to where mm-hmm. I'm like really getting it so intensely in the jaw hinge that I can't even like, okay. So it was, it was mid grade, kind of you know? Yeah. Which is, I like the sour beers or sour in general, kind of the way I like my spice, like enough that I feel it, but yeah. not enough to where I'm like trying to chug milk. It's becoming like it. a physical endurance test. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. to, I like to know that it's there, but I don't like it to ruin my day, you no. know? Uh, and I feel like this one, it was, it was tart. But it wasn't overly tart. And yeah. I know that there certainly are people out there that sour is their fucking thing. And they yeah. just want shit to be as sour as possible. I remember growing up, kids that would pop warheads like Tic Tacs. Oh, sure, and it was yeah. like, you monster, you were going to go to jail at some point in your life because yeah. you clearly have no emotions. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I definitely did like this one. Um, if I... I I believe you that it's our first time, but Joe's a wild card. You never know. Maybe I know. I, I, and a great introduction. Um, the only reason that I think it's not our first time is because I recognize the name and it's, I well, know it's not when we get, I here. have a hat th- that has their name uh, on it, but, it. but also I've had their after beers. I'm too, sure right? after hours or maybe even just when we were back in the day, when back we used to just day. pop bottles for, yeah. for the heck of it. Anyway, um, well, well, good. I'm glad that this leftover from my cellar was something that helped get us through this first half of the episode where we're encountering all these leftover films that we didn't quite get to in 2021. I can only hope that we have a similarly delicious beer to get us through this second helping of leftovers when we get back. And we're back! 
<laughs> all right. We're going to get back into it because we had such a great time talking about all, all these movies that didn't get their full due on the show that we didn't even look at the running time and we realized that that first half was longer than a half of an episode normally is We think us. we're being concise, and then we realize we aren't concise people. <laughs> we yeah. realize, yeah, that that's not our strong suit. Uh, so we're just going to get straight back into it. This is a beer. Um, <laughs> it says that it was canned on January 10th, 2022, which means it's pretty fresh. And the yeah, reason that that's important is because this is a beer from Belching Beaver, uh, which... Uh, is a brewery in Oceanside, California. It's one that I, I feel like we've had on the show I'm, before. I'm pretty sure I'm looking it I, up. I, 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 their uh, Mexican chocolate peanut butter stout, I think is what it is, is one that I really like quite a bit. Um, but this is a beer that they did in collaboration with uh, the vastly overrated rock band uh, Deftones. Ooh, um, yes, I'm playing my cards. Words. I'm playing my cards, especially in Corpus. That's a... You're, you're liable to get stabbed for talking bad about the Deftones. People love the Deftones here. I'm sorry, Martin. I just and Daniel actually, and uh, Devin, right? Is it? Is oh he, yeah, Devin yeah. does. I think, I, but I think, I think that's something Devin knows about me already. Okay, <laughs> uh, all right. So he won't be quite as uh, as floored by it. I don't think. But it's called Phantom Bride. Uh, again, IPA. And, uh, okay, so it's named after the ethereal song by the one and only Deftones. Phantom Bride IPA is a blend of, and this is why I bought it, Amarillo, Citra, Simcoe, and Mosaic Hops. Some of my favorite hop varieties in there. Uh, delicately balanced for the perfectly drinkable mix of citrus and hoppy goodness. A truly original Deftones Belching Beaver collaboration envisioned by Chino Moreno and skillfully crafted by Thomas Peters. Sit back, put, your, put on your headphones and drink away. And, you know, I... I love a Chicano King in rock music. So I do have a uh, somewhat soft spot for the Deftones, despite the fact that I don't really care for their music all that much, but we will see if this, how this beer stands up um, as far as like the collaboration and it's overall drinkability goes. So like well, I mentioned, I'm excited. I, I I know that we've had Belching Beaver, but I can't find it on. The I don't. Spreadsheet. I don't think. I don't think we've had it so, on. So we, on the main episode. I was going to say it may have been an after hours. But thing. the you know, again, the beer that I like the most from them, and the one that if I'm buying a Belching Beaver can that I'm buying is a stout. Um, I don't see an IPA from them and go, oh, I need to get that. Um, so we'll see how they do with the. With the style, I don't I don't drink as much of their IPAs as their stuff. So, no, kind of excited, uh, uncharted territory for this. me with them. Uh, but you know, we have to get back into some films again. We so sure we will sip on this as we venture into venture back into uh, those films of 2021, 2021 that we have not paid full attention to, but we still want to cover. And my. God damn! <laughs> it, it, it it refreshed on me. It went oh, back no. to it went, it went back to the most recent. So I've got to scroll back up and. Do you want me to kick one on the list? Um, yeah, go ahead. All go right. Ahead. So I'm going to go ahead and mention a film that I don't think you've gotten around to seeing. I know Joe did, and we had a little combo about it when we recorded before. This is a fairly small scale film, a very small indie called The Killing of Two Lovers. It is directed and written by Robert Machoyan. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And uh, it, pretty, you know, tight cast here. We have Clayne Crawford, who I was not so familiar with, but he, I, I know he's had some roles uh, 
on television. I believe he was actually on the television version of Lethal Weapon. There was a, a short-lived, maybe a couple season series based on Lethal Weapon. I remember when that was on um, Never saw it, but, but I think he was playing the Riggs character. Um, you also have Chris Coy, who has been in several things. I knew him from HBO's Treme. He was also uh, on The Walking Dead for a little while and showed up on the HBO series The Deuce. Um, oh, yeah, I didn't see that one. And uh, Sepide Moafi, who I do not know from many other things, but she's the female lead. It's a love triangle film. You have classic a couple that is separated, a married couple that's separated. They have children. Um, the husband, played by Clayne Crawford, uh, is sort of clearly wanting the family to be back together. But the wife, Nikki, is feeling they need to work through some things. We're kind of plunged into the middle of their separation. We don't really understand exactly what motivated the whole thing um, and and what issues it is exactly that they need to work through, although we do see that he has a little bit of anger management uh, problems, um, but not extreme necessarily, though there are some weird indications that maybe that could get worse. Um, but then she's also has a coworker or somebody she wor- who, who works near her who has taken interest in her and who she's starting a relationship with. And so, you know, them kind of navigating being this separated couple, dealing with the split custody. They're on a break. They're on a break, but they can see other people, and yet they're still kind of working through it. It's a weird gray area that they're existing in that I I would not feel comfortable in. I just want you to know that you passed our friendship test by not getting a friend's reference. Oh, good. If you had gotten the Friends reference, oh, I, I would have been like, I don't know about this what, guy. What was the Friends reference? Ross and Rachel. They were on a break. Oh, okay. I don't, yeah. It's a whole thing. Okay. Uh, yeah. Ne- I only know because of the internet. Never never watched much uh, Friends. I'm it's a sorry. bad show. <laughs> I agree. It's a bad show. <laughs> <laughs> we're just losing listeners left and right this week. It's like, they hate Spider-Man. They hate Friends. Okay. Well, but yeah. Well, I, if only Joe were here to defend Spider-Man. But I love this film. I was really blown away with the performances. Again, it's very small scale. It's shot out in rural, oh my gosh, shoot, is it Utah? It's. I mean, it's kind of a beautiful landscape. You have these mountains out in the background that are just kind of like, it seems to be surrounding the town, kind of like hovering around it, um, but but mostly like this kind of desolate landscape. Um, it's it's beautiful, small scale, dramatic filmmaking with great performances at its core. To me, this is kind of one of the things that indie films do really well. And I was excited to see this coming from some people who I really just am not that familiar with. Like I said, Machoyan, this is the first thing I've ever seen that he's done. I know he has a few other things, but it definitely has me interested and makes me want to see more. Uh, Joe was also a big fan of the film once he got around to seeing it. Yeah, so- because he he had said to you, right, if I should watch any two movies, it was between this and what was the other one? Oh, gosh. You would ask. Yeah, no, he did. he did. He gave me kind of an I ultimate. would and I'm I did. Like, um, yeah. Being the Ricardos. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which I'll be talking about soon, folks. <laughs> yeah. um, right, and I told him this would be the one that I would pick. Yeah, yeah, and it is the one that he did, and he expressed to us that he made the right decision and that he really liked yeah. this movie. Yeah. Uh, Streaming on Hulu, so you, okay, you can watch okay, it. Okay, on so. Hulu. Um, I was That was going to be my next question, because this is another one that I have not seen yet. Um, yeah. Yeah, this one, Coda... Um, Belfast mm-hmm. were some of the big ones from the year that I that I hadn't seen that I I knew I wanted to get to. Um, 
well, before I get into another movie that is worth us talking about, uh, I would like to uh, bring in a guest recommendation. Uh, she did not want to appear on mic, but that's okay. But Kylie uh, wanted someone to talk about Tick, Tick, Boom. Okay. Good. I'm, I'm glad because I wasn't sure how we were going to bring that one in because that was yeah. one that only Joe has seen. But if Kylie were in the same room with Joe talking about it, she would be very upset with that take uh, because she loved Tick, Tick, Boom. When she talks about this movie, she gets uh, impassioned in a way that I rarely see from her in talking about a movie. Uh, which I find very interesting because I only saw the very end of it and I found it unwatchable uh, just because of, I mean, you know, we said when we were talking about um, Coda earlier that I, I do like some sentimentality and I like that kind of thing. But it felt a little much in watching Tick, Tick, Boom. Again, I only saw the end, so I didn't have any of the stuff leading up to it. Maybe that would inform the end of that film a little bit more and make me kind of be able to get there with it. Um, but what I did see of it, I did not find enticing in a way that I wanted to watch more of it. But Kylie loves it. And Man. she wants everybody to know that it is a beautiful story about... Well, it's a tragic story, too, well, it's, right? well, it's a beautifully tragic story about a yeah. guy who grinded and grinded and felt like he was running out of time to make his big break. And all he ever wanted was a show on Broadway. And then he dies right before his huge success and wave hits. Yeah. Um, and she thinks that Andrew Garfield's performance is incredible and that it's award worthy and that she hopes that he wins for it. Um, and that she loved the movie. And again, our, you know, our good friend, Alex, who's, um, you know, family runs a local community theater here in town and who herself is a big fan of musical theater and musicals in general. Yes, she loved West Side Story. Uh, she also loved this movie. So that's another endorsement from a fan of musical theater. Yeah. Um, and so there's that. But the movie uh, that I'm going to talk about more in depth is The Velvet Underground. Um, oh, yes. Todd Haynes. Uh our second musical documentary. Our second well, musical. third if we count the uh, kid. Cuddy, his yeah, name yeah. is Scott, or what? The man named Scott. Man named Scott. Man named Scott, or a man named Scott. Yeah, yeah. Um, Velvet Underground documentary. It is. It's an interesting film because it is a slightly different approach. I mean, there's a lot of archival audio used of like. Lou Reed talking and yeah. John Cale and stuff like that, but it's most, they're not quite still images, but they're kind of like these, are they looped almost? Or maybe just long take videos of just their faces and stuff. Yeah. From, uh, so the way it's constructed is very interesting. And I mean, yes, there are some talking heads, like you get Jonathan Richmond talking and you get, um, who was the woman that played drums for them? What was Mo Tucker, Maureen Tucker. Yeah. Um, she's in it, right? Yeah. She talks mm -hmm. a good amount. Um, there was someone else. Um, Lou Reed's sister is in there uh, mm -hmm. talking about him and how she doesn't quite love the way that he gets looked at yeah. from in popular culture and from the media or whatever. Um, but it really focuses a lot more on 
I mean, yes, obviously their music, but their involvement in the New York art scene and, right. uh, you know, with Andy Warhol, Warhol yeah. and how they were, um, I mean, yes, they were a rock band, but they were also experimenting with these kind of droning sounds. And um, it talks about the work leading up to Velvet Underground with the primitives. Am I right mm. about that? The ostrich, yeah, the ostrich, yeah, yeah. Um, stuff like that about, you know, I mean, it does get into a little bit about Lou Reed's relationships and stuff, but it, 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 it has a slightly different perspective than what you would expect from just like a straight ahead Velvet Underground documentary. Cause it kind of, the movie kind of ends when the band ends right. and normally in a documentary like this, you would get a lot of like, what's gone on since, what's gone on what since and everyone yeah. that was in, yeah. that was influenced by them. And I mean, I, I, I'm sure it does get mentioned the famous quote not many people bought the Velvet Underground record, but everyone that did started, started a band yeah. or whatever. Um, you don't get as much of that kind of stuff, of the legacy stuff, mm -hmm. uh, which I liked because I find that less interesting than kind of honing in on their time and place yeah. and the context in which not only they were formed, but that they existed as well. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's a very good... And kind of unique take on the music documentary that I enjoyed. I agree wholeheartedly. I have some caveats, but I enjoyed it. I yeah, I I, I don't know that I do. I mean, I I love the Velvet Underground, the, the music. I mean, as I, do I. I I love the period. I love the the kind of niche that they filled during that time. And we we talked earlier in the episode about Summer of Soul and how that's kind of this like counterpart to the counterculture at least as we popularly conceive it especially through music mm -hmm. and i feel like velvet underground is that as well like oh, yeah they hated hippies they hated hippies and they it's were funny more they, into speed than acid they, it, you know. it's funny that they hated the mothers of invention that was something that i found interesting throughout <laughs> the they talk a lot of shit about the mothers of invention and about frank zappa yeah but he also hated hippies yeah, no, the, I mean, you you can, you know, the enemy of your enemy is sometimes your friend, but sometimes it's just your other enemy. But <laughs> Mo, Mo refers to them as hippies at one point. Yeah. Uh, which I get why you would think Well, that, I think visually they read more as hippies, right? They, they had did, long yeah. hair and they were from the West Coast and they, yeah. you know, so I, I think they fit. But I mean, Frank Zappa is a capitalist, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I, I get where you're coming yeah. from and, and I, and it's for good reason but it but it is you know funny that th they are this other part of what was going on in the 60s which at the time was very much on the fringe and still to this day does not have the kind of popular recognition that i might think it deserves yeah but i mean th the quote that you pointed to earlier it may be hyperbole that everybody who bought the record has gone on to make a band but it is not hyperbole to say that maybe not a successful band. so many bands that have come since in the decades of the 70s 80s 90s but you know like the whole genre of alternative rock or college rock art um, rock Art rock. These are the bands that populate those genres are bands that, even if they aren't aware of it, are treading the the ground that Velvet Underground sort of created, you know, or, yeah. or or like helped forge. You know what I mean? Whether or not they created. So, to me, this was a great 
loving documentary of that period. And I think you're right. It does something interesting where it really doesn't want to belabor like all that stuff about what happened after the band. It kind of just focuses mostly on what was that moment when they were together? What brought them together? How did it all that's operate? Interesting too, like, because it does more so than maybe a lot of documentation about them mm-hmm. kind of talk about where John Cale came from, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. It he is. was of this prodigy avant classical, yeah. I mean, kind of thing, yeah, which is not rock music, not a lot right. of people get into rock music that come from that background no. uh, which made his contributions to the velvet underground very interesting i mean yeah. you, and you hear it in those first two records especially Absolutely. you know there's a lot of weird droney sounds and yeah. stuff like that in My, fact i feel like it, it's it's one where i when i watched it whatever what did it come back in october it was coming yeah, out maybe I think it was october i you know i feel like i need to watch it again because yeah. it you know i remember it and i enjoyed it a lot when i saw it the first time but i feel like it's one that i could easily watch again and uh and and get even more out of yeah i i agree having seen it more recently than you even would yeah. and you know my only caveat with it is that i just have i don't know i just have a weird hang up for like the reverence of the legacy kind of mm. groups and stuff like that. i mean and there's and frankly there's no way around it Right. Yeah. You can't make this documentary and not have that in there, you yeah. know? So it's not something that I begrudge the film for, but it is, you know, I personally kind of, I don't necessarily need to see a documentary that tells me how great Velvet Underground was. I know. I get it. You know, like I knew it before I saw this documentary. I continue to know it afterwards. Did yeah. I find the documentary interesting? Yes. But I, when it comes to music docs, I go for, I go more for like a, a band called Death or the Sparks Brothers one, which. Where it's truly exposing you to something that you didn't Yeah, know which about. like if you're a Sparks fan going into that Sparks Brothers documentary, it's probably <laughs> not going to read the same way to you right, that it did to right. me. But me having very little knowledge and understanding mm. of them going in, I left it with this newfound reverence yeah. for them. Whereas I went into the velvet underground with a reverence for the velvet underground. And at a certain point, it kind of almost feels like belaboring the point. Like, okay, yeah, I get it. They're fucking great. You know, yeah. I, you know, I mean, and you know, and I go, I go farther with Lou Reed, like the solo stuff, even as far as like the Raven album that he did with that has, yeah. that has like fucking Willem Dafoe voice acting on uh-huh. it and stuff. Like I, I even like some of that stuff. Uh, I, and actually, <laughs> This is funny. I recently re-listened to the album he did with Metallica. Oh, wow. Is that Lulu? Lulu. Yeah. Honestly, like it. Okay. Wow. (laughs) I am kind of baffled at the backlash that album has received. Huh. I get get it. If you're a Metallica fan and you're like, I'm going to listen to a new Metallica album, then yeah, yeah, of course you're going to be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. But if you go into it with realistic expectations of like, okay, heavy band. Yeah crazy guy yeah together and that's what you would that's what you get out of it you know anyway all uh, right well so. I, I i may i may take a look at take a listen to that at you should go back again. and listen to yeah it. um so yeah it, i think i i hear where you're coming from i think if you don't know of it underground 
there's nothing to keep you from seeing this. Absolutely, absolutely nothing, see yeah. it. But I get it. If you if you're if you are well versed in their history and their music, this may not be as groundbreaking uh, as you'd want it to be. Um, you know, not as groundbreaking as I wanted it to be in some ways, but also kind of uh, worthwhile. Being the Ricardos, uh, which we mentioned earlier, as as the film that I told Joe not to see. Um, <laughs> you know, not it, to prioritize. Right. He didn't say not to see it. Wasn't because I didn't like it on some level i did uh you know this is a film depicting a week in the production of the i love lucy program where lucy is experiencing some uh, uh some pressure because it has come out that she had marked herself as a member of the communist party when she registered to vote years ago um, she has a reason as we for all did doing that. Yeah, um, this is in the midst of the you know sort of communist uh, you know witch hunts, the you know the the McCarthy scare, era, yeah. the Red Scare in the 1950s, and so this is a big deal, right? And so it's it's kind of seeing how the show operates, but I under mean, this, Chaplin was exiled for that. Yeah, right under, under this intense pressure. So. Yeah, I mean, a, a many, huge, a fucking huge deal. Oh, sure, and, should and not be understated. Dalton Trumbo. I mean, there are lots of, and there have been films made about this. There have been stories There's a movie told. Called There's Trumbo. Books. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so this was a big deal. This could have potentially been ruinous to her career. Now, obviously, you know, she navigated it well, and the film takes some dramatic liberties with the story and how it unfolded, but a lot Aaron of the elements... Sorkin taking liberties with the script. <laughs> a lot of the I elements are there. Well, right there, you're pointing out, you know, this is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, and it's very much an Aaron Sorkin film. Um, if, you know, I went into it with trepidation around how are these performers going to pull this off? In particular, Nicole Kidman, I was not convinced, would pull off Lucy in a way that I would be completely comfortable with having grown up watching I Love Lucy and and knowing her as this kind of huge iconic comedic figure in American history. I think she does a pretty good job. Okay, I, I, I was actually impressed with, with how she handled it. Javier Bardem as Desi, I thought was great. I love Javier Bardem and I can watch him in just about anything. And I think he... Like, he was it, great in Dune. It, yes, absolutely. It took me a little bit to kind of acclimate to him and his version of Desi. But once I did, I enjoyed it. I can and, see that. And there's some really They're good, not a real one-to-one physical comparison. I no, <laughs> no. Um, and, and I thought that uh, Nina Arianda, who played Vivian Vance, the, the mm-hmm. um, Ethel Mertz character mm-hmm. from uh, I Love Lucy, and the, and the actress portraying her, fantastic. I think she kind I of- I keep seeing this article about how she's like, how through being the Ricardo, she's coming out of Lucy's shadow or something like well, that. Well, yeah, it's, it, it keeps popping up on my, a big point theme. of drama is like yeah. her place in the show and how Lucy treats her and all that. So, so that's pretty cool stuff. Um, JK Simmons as William Frawley, who plays the, uh, Fred Mertz character mm-hmm. in, in I love Lucy. Really great. JK Simmons. You got to love. I, yeah, I forgot. I totally forgot about his role in No Way Home as the like, <laughs> Alex J. Jones. Jones yes, fucking, right. Oh my God, yeah. I hated that. Yeah. Uh, well, unnecessary, I feel. Oh, it's fine. <sighs> but but that said, being the Ricardos, where it really fell is is the Sorkin dialogue. I felt like I just, you know, there are some times that it works okay. Social Network, I was okay mm-hmm. with. 
um, because a bunch of people at Harvard talking about this stuff, they kind of sound like Aaron Sorkin, and that's believable, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, this this mix of people on a Hollywood set talking this way, it didn't ring true to me, and there was a little bit too much of it for me to be comfortable throughout the whole thing. So I could see that. It didn't quite pull together in the way that I would want it to, but it wasn't for the fault of the actors. And I think conceptually, it's pretty interesting. It's kind of a neat way, like, let's take this week in the production of this series, kind of shine a spotlight on it. I love that it's only a week. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I'm sure it's been discussed on the show before at this point, four years in, but, uh, you know, a huge contention of mine with the biopic is just trying to do too much. Yeah. Like trying to right. put somebody's and there life are into two hours. There are flashbacks that kind of bring some other moments from... Which makes sense. It but, makes sense that you would bring that context in, but yeah. for the focus of it to be a week, I think is a much better way to handle a story like this. To give I your, agree. To give yourself I, a realistic... Yeah. Period of time I think to cover. Conceptually, it was a sound idea. I just, I need Sorkin to get like other people in the room with him <laughs> to, I don't know, to, to, to kind of flesh out. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, like, okay, some people aren't as articulate or there are times that people struggle with their words. And yeah. Let, let yeah. that happen. I don't know. Yeah. It's not always perfectly delivered yeah. every single time. Yeah. 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 I can see that. I can see that. Um, that's, that's very interesting. I, one thing that I think uh, I mentioned to you in one of our uh, Friday rendezvous that we don't invite Joe to um, is that I was listening to with Corley and Rust, a podcast that I like. And if you like meandering nonsense, it's, it's for you. <laughs> and if you're listening to uh, this, you like meandering I mean, nonsense. I mean, I mean, you think that we go down some tangents. I mean, <laughs> these are three hour podcasts, roughly most of the time, two to three hour podcasts. Anyway, um, but they were talking about Scream or something and they went on this 15 minute tangent about being the Ricardos and the main critique that uh, Paul Russ gave, who, if you don't know, uh, created, wrote and starred in the Netflix series Love. He's also in I Love You, Beth Cooper and, and several other things. Um, but he his big critique was that he felt like Aaron Sorkin wrote Lucille Ball into this Aaron Sorkin archetype of archetype yeah. of a character rather than letting her exist the way that she really did. And, you know, almost him taking this kind of paint by numbers outline of an Aaron Sorkin film mm. and just like slotting in the characters of these real life people, Yeah, uh, which again, haven't seen it. So I can't say if I agree or disagree with that take, but it was, uh, an interesting perspective, I yeah. thought, um, especially when you're talking about somebody like Aaron Sorkin, who has such a distinct style yeah. uh, of writing, where you can hear characters speaking to one another and be like, nine out of ten, that's Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, interesting. Probably will not watch it. I don't have a great affinity for biopics at this point in my life. I just, I just don't know if I need them. Well, the, and I'm not going to tell you that this is one uh, you have to see. So, and and yeah, a Nicole Kidman, I can leave more often than I can take. Uh, yeah, uh, but you know, who I can always take in a movie is Nicolas Cage. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and we have another Nicolas Cage, <laughs> and we do, we sure do. And this one, this one is more interesting. It is the on the poster for it. It says the wildest film I've ever made. Nicholas Cage is that is how he described this movie. It is by a filmmaker named Sion Sono. It's called Prisoners of the Ghostland, 
Cyan Sono has, you know, a pretty extensive filmography, um, kind of known for his bombastic style being somewhat over the top. Um, what is the big one? Tokyo Vampire Hotel is a big one that people uh, point to. Tokyo Tribe, I think, is another one. Um, but basically, this is a movie that takes place in a somewhat post-apocalyptic section of Japan where, uh, you know, we don't find out until later in the film, but there's been an, an atomic incident that has left this particular uh, part of Japan kind of abandoned and isolated because of its radioactivity. Um, and so there is this town, what is the town called? Samurai something. Um, I'll cut this out. Samurai, it's just called Samurai Town. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, that um, is run by this guy referred to as the governor who's played by Bill Mosley, who we saw in repo, the genetic uh -huh. opera. Uh, and he has kind of taken his favorite elements of samurai feudal Japanese culture, architecture and the American West and just kind of put them together Smashed in whatever way he feels <laughs> that he feels fit. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, it is kind of visually disjointed intentionally because he's insane. Um, but yeah, he's taken, um, these adopted granddaughters, which are essentially like concubines that he keeps around. And, uh, one of them, uh, played by Sophia Butella, who was an atomic blonde and the Gaspar Noe film climax. Uh, she plays a character named Bernice who escapes. Uh, but then she finds herself in this kind of, um, outland known as the ghost land. Mm -hmm. Um, and the governor hires Nicolas Cage, a bank robber who's been imprisoned, uh, to go get her back. He says, you're the guy to go get her back. You got to go out there to this place that nobody has returned from uh, and bring her back. You have three days. If you can find her in three days and have uh, her say her name into this device that's on your wrist, which is attached to a suit, which has explosives attached to it, uh, with various different criteria for what makes them explode. Um, there's like these two bombs around his neck that if he tries to take the suit off will explode. He has two bombs on his arm that if he tries to uh, hurt a woman will explode. And he has two bombs on his testicles that if he uh, tries to have a sexual experience mm -hmm. will explode. Uh, and on the wrist is this device that's counting down the days he has until it all blows up and he dies. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it's a fucking samurai movie question mark. Uh, <laughs> old West movie is supernatural. Supernatural. <laughs> well, there is, cause there is this, um, it's called prisoners of the ghost land right. because the thing that caused this atomic event was a, caravan carrying like toxic radioactive waste colliding with a bus full of violent criminals that were being escorted somewhere and they cut they collide explode nuclear explosion mm -hmm. radioactive criminal ghosts uh fucking it's a. gonna happen it's gonna yeah. happen it happens to the best of us <laughs> <laughs> and it is nick cage at his expressionist best yeah he's giving an insane performance. So, so we you go know, we go from pig where he's you know dialed in, it back, pulled back, subtle, but tortured, grieving that that kind of 
all the way to the full all bore. The way. He gives a monologue where his eyes are bulging out of his head. Yeah. Uh, and it's got great fucking samurai sword fights. Uh, it's got a great soundtrack that's got all these kind of influences in it from all over the place. It's hmm. synthy. It's got like some kind of traditional Japanese kind of sounds to it. Uh, it's just this melting pot of things musical going on. Motifs musical motifs. Musical motifs. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it's great. Uh, you know, I think I think so. I think Sophia Butella is great in her role. You know, she's kind of catatonic for a big mm-hmm. part of it. Um, there's this guy or a character by the name of Yashu Jira, who's like the governor's kind of right hand man. He's a samurai. Every time he pulls his sword out, it's badass. The fight scenes are so sick, but it is really just crazy. Um, <laughs> it's unlike anything you've seen this year. It's like just a, it's a very unique movie watching experience that I think is worth everybody's time if you have a chance to watch it. And, you know, just going into it, I would say expect crazy Nick Cage because like, while I in reviewing his performance in this film would say it's fantastic. Nick Cage is like at his best in this movie I'm saying that with the caveat that I know which Nick Cage I'm getting, and I personally am here for that Nick Cage. Yeah. If you find that Nick Cage to be off-putting, and you don't understand what is good about that expressionistic, over-the-top, you know, insane mode of acting that he can find himself in, and it, that's not some somewhere you can go, then yeah, okay, maybe not for you. <laughs> but it, but if you're willing to go with the absurd, if you're willing to go with the just completely detached from reality kind of storylines and plot points and things like that, then you will have a ton of fun watching this movie. Yeah. It sounds like it. Because that's what it is, is it's fun and it's wild. Yeah. Uh, So I, I implore you to allow yourself the space to go there. Indulge. Because you will... If you if you go in with an open mind, I think you will very much enjoy it. Well, I, I definitely need to see this one. Ever since you talked about it uh, when we recorded this the first time, I've been thinking I need to get around to it. But I need the right time. I need I need to be right in and the right mood. And it's on Shutter, which is kind of tough. Uh, well, it's, yeah, I, mean, I can. I, can make I think it you work. can. I think you can, you can rent you can it on rent other it platforms. Again. Yeah. Um, well, well, I'm excited, and, and in fact, I, I love that we include it because this kind of becomes an unofficial cage match episode now that we've <laughs> yeah. included it. Um, but I'm going to talk about a film that, that Joe had kind of been the lead on when we did this uh, recording uh, the first time, and that's the George Clooney-directed film, The Tender Bar, oh, yeah. um, which is based on a uh, memoir by J.R. Moringer, uh, it is a coming of age story <laughs> about a young man, uh, who's being raised by primarily a single mother who has, uh, you know, the, as the film starts kind of moves back in with her family, um, w- with him as a nine year old. 
And, you know, the members of the family include his uncle Charlie, who's played by Ben Affleck, who runs and owns a bar, that the sort of titular bar of here, the tender bar. Um, you have also the patriarch of the family, Grandpa, who's played by Christopher Lloyd, um, who, who I think is quite funny. And, love and seeing him in stuff again. Me too, yeah. I mean, I, Great in Nobody. He's great in Nobody. I love seeing him in this, although I will note that Joe thought that it was a bit too much, uh, the, the, the sort of comic relief that Grandpa brought into the film. But he, you know, what is it with Joe him not hates liking comic, comic relief? relief. He, doesn't he wanna, hates it. Yeah, um, but he did buy into the, the drama and the gravitas of this story in a way that I couldn't quite I was going to say, that's the part that I feel, personally, I have the most trouble with. Right. Um, you know, I, I think there's some real stakes to it. <laughs> we, we talked about that in the first. The, you know, the, this young guy who has kind of a deadbeat dad who is kind of this looming presence because uh, he he's a radio disc jockey he on New York radio he's pretty pretty big deal um in a sense but he's very absent and when he does come around he's kind of half interested so there there's definitely a tortured relationship with the father that kind of overcoming that that JR has to do he wants to be a writer you know he ends up writing a memoir later, so we know that. Uh, Worked but, out. <laughs> um, but, you know, seeing him kind of go through that and some early relationships and all that, I mean, there's some heartwarming moments. It's okay. Uh, I didn't think it was a great film. I don't think it really... I think it, I think it needed a little more work at the screenplay stage to make it kind of work in the way that it would Did have... Did you say who wrote it? Uh, well, the screenplay was done by William Monaghan, who mm-hmm. I don't know from a lot of other stuff, but he's won Academy Awards, so, I mean, Fucking he's, he, he's definitely somebody who's uh, The Departed, That that that's okay. a big one, right? Edge of Darkness. Yeah, I haven't seen The, the Departed Gambler, in a while, but I Mojave, really yeah. like um, So, you know, I'm not going to wholeheartedly recommend this one. It's on Amazon. It's one that, if you have the time, sure. Check it out if 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 that. But you know, I'm not going to put it even up there with Belfast and uh, and Coda. I think th- those are two that I would definitely recommend people see. Coda for sure. This one I'm going to say is on like a a third tier shelf where I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, if if you're really bored and you don't have anything else going on, you could check this one out. But this isn't one that people really need. Now, Joe, I think would say that there was enough there that he would recommend it. So, yeah. okay. Didn't see it. Gotta say, at this point, I doubt you will. Ben Affleck leading a film, not for me. He doesn't really uh, lead. He's more of a support. Okay, because he, he, he's not Jr. He's the uncle. Well, yeah, yeah. but uh, the uh, um, Amazon Prime is where I watch Psych. Okay, when I'm like, when I know I'm probably gonna fall asleep shortly, and I'm just like, okay. like in the middle of Spider-Man No Way Home, you'll look on your phone and you start, start watching, watching a psych. Yeah, watching <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I did, actually. Um, and, and so I, I get these trailers for, uh, what's the, not Rose McGowan, what's her name? Roseman Pike show, oh. The Circle something or okay. whatever. I don't know. It's some, it's like, it's a, the alternative to game, it's like you watch Game of Thrones and I watch this. I can't remember oh, what it's called, but yeah. I see these trailers for Amazon shit. And I, mm-hmm. so I saw this trailer a bunch of times and the way the trailer presents it is this is a Ben Affleck movie. You know? Well, I'm not surprised. Um, he's, the, well, yeah, he's definitely the biggest name. Definitely yeah. the biggest. Well, I don't know. Christopher Lloyd, let's not get carried away. <laughs> um, anyway. So yeah, I don't know if it's one. And this one, at least again in the trailer, which yeah, as we talked about with pig can be very deceiving. 
it seems like it takes the sentimentality a little farther than I would care for it to, yeah. uh, personally. Um, but that's just me. Um, after that one, do you have, do you have more? Do you I have think more? I'm, I'm you think out. You're done? I'm okay. Out. Okay. Then I'm going to rapid fire a few. Okay. Um, so the first one is the night house directed by David Bruckner, starring Rebecca Hall, Sarah Goldberg, Evan, Joni get maybe, I don't know. It's a weird name. Uh, and Stacy Martin. It is, I mean, what do you say? Uh, Rebecca Hall plays a character named Beth whose husband Owen committed suicide. Um, she's rummaging through his belongings and starts to find clues that would suggest that maybe he had a life that she didn't know about. There were things mm-hmm. he was doing that uh, she didn't know about. Part of it is building this secret house out in the woods near where they lived. Um, and it's this kind of... Uh, psychological horror movie mm-hmm. um that whose plot points don't all tie up in a nice bow neatly at the very end um you could definitely pick some stuff apart if you wanted to but i think all of the things that happen in the movie are in service of the kind of themes that it's pondering hmm. um and you know, the subject matter that it is attempting to tackle and so i'm because of I can see the connective tissue. Uh, I'm willing to kind of excuse maybe some of those things that Mm -hmm. I might otherwise get hung up on. Um, But, you know, it's a movie about grief and about loss and longing and, you know, trying to to cope with things uh, Mm -hmm. to the best of your ability. Uh, And I, I found it to be a very entertaining and engaging film. Um, I enjoyed watching it quite a bit. And I think that after Godzilla versus Kong and this, Rebecca Hall is someone who I'm very much enjoying seeing on screen. I mean, you know, I haven't seen her in a ton of things, but what I have seen her in so far, I've I've enjoyed a great deal. Uh, So the next movie is a comedy thriller, which is something you don't see a whole lot of uh, called happily. That was written and directed by Ben David Grabinski in his directorial debut. It stars Joel McHale, Carrie Bichet, Stephen Root, Natalie Morales, Paul Shear, and Natalie Zia. It also has, um, fucking what's his name? Uh, uh, shit, Brecken Meyer and uh, Charlene Yee in it as well. And John Daly. John Daly's fucking funny in this movie. Anyway, uh, and a brief appearance from Al Madrigal. And it's about this couple, um, Tom and Janet, who are a perfectly married couple. They Mm -hmm. never fight. They have sex constantly. They seem to have no problems whatsoever. And all their friends are jealous of their lustful relationship. And then a stranger comes to their home to tell them that there's something wrong with them and that there has been a mistake and that they're not really supposed to be this happy. Uh, and it ends up with that man being dead and they start to question the loyalty of their friends and they end up on this couple's weekend vacation, uh, where the many sordid details of their friend group's lives begin to be revealed. Hmm. Uh, it's really fucking good, and it's a really unique movie, I think. You don't 
see a lot of comedies that kind of tread into this kind of territory and do it so well as far as making something as tonally opposing as a comedy thriller yeah. work in this way. And I think Steven Root's fucking great in it. I love that guy. He's good. Uh, and I think, I think Natalie Morales is great. We talked about her. Uh, when we uh, talked about plan B. Um, always love Paul Shear. John Daly's funny. He has a comedy album called uh, 10 Sweaters, I think is what it's called, that everyone should listen to if you're a comedy fan, especially character comedy. Anyway, it's a great movie. Uh, it didn't get a very wide release. Hardly anybody saw this. Nobody's talking about it. Um, kind of flew under the radar. Um, I mostly know about it because I'm a huge Joel McHale fan and John... Er, John. <laughs> Josh will like that one. Uh, uh, Paul Shear fan. Um, I... I love everyone that's in this movie. Jack Black uh, produced it, actually. Um, So that's that one. And then the last one is How It Ends, which was written, directed, and produced by Daryl Wayne and Zoe Lister-Jones. Zoe Lister-Jones is probably most known by the average movie and TV-watching audience as playing Fawn Moscato in New Girl. (laughs) Um, But the people that are in this, this was a movie that was completely produced during COVID shot during COVID all of it, like full lockdown quarantine COVID, Mm -hmm. not just like the last two years. Right. Um, so it's got Zoe Lister Jones, Whitney Cummings, Tawny Newsom, Finn Wolfhard, Nick Kroll, Logan Marshall Green, Bobby Lee, Fred Armisen, Glenn Howerton, Bradley Whitford, Sharon Vonnet and Olivia Wilde, Paul Downs, Lamorne Morris, Rob Hubel, Paul Shear, Helen Hunt, Colin Hanks, Charlie Day, Mary Elizabeth Ellis and Polly Shore. I mean, the cast is fucking crazy. And basically, it is a film about the last day on earth there it's kind of similar to don't look up honestly uh there's a comet heading for earth everybody knows it's happening nobody's disputing it and everyone's just like what are we going to do on our last day this is it nothing we can do to stop it Mm -hmm. and zoe lister jones uh her character is trying to make it to whitney cummings end of the world party uh and she is accompanied by a younger version of herself um who is played by a young actress who I'm not that familiar with named uh, Kaylee Spanny, uh, who plays the younger version of her. And so they're walking through LA trying to get to this party and they run across a bunch of different people. The One of the first being Fred Armisen, who's a younger version of an older man who's inside the house. And, <laughs> and they're like, wow, you can see her? Like, And it's like this whole thing where they can see the younger version of each other yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and it's just like all the hijinks that you get into on the way to a party on the hmm. last day of the world. Yeah. Uh, Bradley Whitford plays her dad. Lamorne Morris plays her ex-boyfriend. Uh, and it's, tr- you know... Yes, it's getting to this party, but it's also reconciling all of the uh, open-ended things in your life that you would like to be wrapped up. All the loose ends you'd want to tie. Yeah, before you meet your ultimate fate. You know, right? And uh, yeah, (laughs) Whitney Cummings is dating Polly Shore in this movie, and his appearance in it is just absolutely baffling. (laughs) Like, why he's there, I don't know. Uh, He's a much-loved figure in the world of comedy. Is he though? He is. He is. I've seen his stand up and it is fucking well, awful. <laughs> among comedians. I don't I don't know about like him as an actual comedian to okay. comedy fans, but it, well his parents ran the, co- the well, comedy his store, ran his the mom comedy missed, store. Yeah. yeah. So I mean that would make that would I would find him to be a more maligned figure because of the nepotism. Yeah, uh, like, but I don't, oh, you're I don't a shitty feel like he gets but that. You have a career. Think, yeah, he doesn't. I don't no, think he does, no. which is 
interesting to me. Right. Anyway, right. that's a great movie. Uh, and just like happily one that almost nobody saw. Yeah. Might not have gotten a theatrical release at all. Yeah. I think. Well, it's it's um, it's, it's good to uh, be but it's be good. reminded of those things. You brought up Rebecca Hall, a film that none of us. I think Joe saw it actually, but a film that none of us talked about passing was pretty big this past year uh, on Netflix with Rebecca Hall um as a as a lead character and oh that's passing. what i need yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i didn't see that, that i need but to you're see. right um yeah. so that you know that, that there are still films from 2021 i feel like we're going to be talking about or or maybe we'll be pairing with something uh, down the road um it's impossible to ever capture all of it it's impossible to get to everything but this episode we've tried to cover a lot that we didn't quite get to pay attention to the way we would like to have in a regular episode, um, listeners, if you have things that you feel like we should have covered or that you wish somebody would have covered or, or that you feel like need more attention, you can let us know. But before we get there, actually, because I know you'll be talking about that yeah, stuff, yeah. we got a beer to talk about here. And even if we don't love the the band that inspired it, can we get over that and, and love the beer and the can that David, uh, I'll say that they the, brought to us? In the time that you poured that beer and now that you finished it... Mm-hmm. I've watched a change in you. Oh yeah, that is a Deftones lyric. Okay, so, <laughs> I'm like Friends references and Deftones lyrics are gonna fall flat. It's from with like me. a Queen of the Dam soundtrack. Oh, I believe. Uh, well, I'm someone sorry. out there listening to this uh, is was like, "Oh, I see it. what you there, did I mean, there. they're they're probably you probably dropped a little sound cue in there. I, I might. Yeah. I should. I should. Uh, well, <laughs> even though I don't have any real Deftones bona fides, um, I, I have I some. I, I've I have some IPA, uh, you know, uh, experience. Yeah, I do. I've dr- I've drank quite a few. This is a good IPA. I think it's a little green, uh, but mm. not not by a huge amount. I mean, I think I think the hops were were a little hot, little little hot for me, but. Uh, ultimately, I really enjoyed drinking this. It was it was tasty, and what seven point one percent? That's a pretty. That's pretty not bad. Good, yeah, that's not bad. Um, range. Yeah, we were right at seven percent this whole episode. That's the right. Was the seven, Oxbow was seven, and yeah. this was seven point one. Bumped it up a notch. That's right, just a little, <laughs> just one Eking little. It up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I look. I'll I'll be forthcoming as I always am with this podcast. I did have this beer before uh, we recorded this episode. I had one last night liked it quite a bit Mm -hmm. uh one of the reasons that i thought even though it's not there's no tie and not that there's any way we could really tie it into this episode because we talked about so many movies um but i was like you know we should have this i think it's i think it's a pretty solid beer and um you know since we are in an episode where there's really no way to have a tie-in with anything uh (laughs) why not just fucking go for the deftones beer and that's right a, a good a good time to to have just a left field beer uh and yeah i liked it um i will very happily drink the rest of this six pack which another thing i liked about it 16 ounce cans six pack don't see it a lot that's right with especially where you don't see it a lot with ipas at least uh you know lagers and stuff sure but in this case no uh so definitely uh a fan of it regardless of how you may or may not feel about the band the beer is worth your time. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it up to you if the Deftones are worth your time. Um, 
but again, as you know, as David kind of alluded to moments ago, um, I'm sure that there are movies in 2021 that we did not see that you saw that you think we should have seen or maybe talked about. Um, but that is the best part about this podcast is that when the episode ends, the conversation continues. It goes on, uh, on all of your favorite social media channels. You can find us on Twitter at beer movie show, Instagram at beer and a movie, facebook.com slash beer and movie TX beer and movie podcast.com has probably the most to offer that it ever has. You can find, uh, all of these kind of, um, highlight episode sections like the best of all horror October. You can find links to, uh, episodes where we cover specific directors, um, some of that kind of more themed uh, content that we've done rather than just like, this is a new release. You can find all of that kind of stuff. Do you love John Carpenter? Well, go to the website and you can click on the John Carpenter episode or the Kevin Smith episode. Uh, It's all there. And there's also this great comprehensive beer map where you can see every city, state, country that we've had a beer from and all of the different... uh, selections that we've had from each of those breweries as well um that is a lot of fun to look at and of course patreon.com slash beer and movie podcast is where you can financially support the show to help us keep giving you the best content we possibly can five dollars a month gets you a bonus episode every single week yes we talk about beer yes we talk about movies we talk about so many other things as well which i'm sure david and i will get into this (laughs) week specifically since it's just us and we have total free reign over record nerddom or whatever it is that's going on um and if you're listening to this on apple podcast please rate review and subscribe it really helps us to manipulate that algorithm into doing what it do so that all of the beer lovers and movie lovers out there on the world wide web have this podcast put in front of them um and i think that that about wraps it up for a bonus sized episode this week uh until next time We don't get a lot of things to really care about.